they don't get to leave. We have the luxury of being able to leave. But if we can plant that seed where we have instructors who can continue the message, continue education, that's an outsized impact. You teach one person, they teach 10 people, they save 10 lives, and you just look at that ripple effect throughout everything. Welcome back to the podcast with myself, Owen Walker. In this episode, we're going to be speaking uh, about an update on the Ukrainian conflict. So what we're to do is just look at some of the contemporary reflections on the Ukrainian crisis with David and Sean. Uh, this was uh, recorded in the World Extreme Medicine Conference uh, a couple of weeks ago. And what we want to do is really give you an update on the contemporary conflict over the process of approximately 560 days, the so last couple of years. So we purposely keep David and Sean's profile um, quite vague uh, for a number of reasons. But what we want to do is really examine their perspective on the emerging needs on the ground uh, in Ukraine, but also their reflections and anecdotal experience of the Ukrainian people, just how the Ukrainian people have dealt with the crisis, how they, their tenacity, their resilience, their mindset, and also just how this has evolved over time, how the conflict has evolved over, over time as well. So we're going to look at their anecdotal reflections on the conflict. We're also going to look at some of the main factors that have changed over time and also just look at what the needs are on the ground currently as as well. So please do enjoy this episode. Um, Sean and David are fantastic guests. They really give um, some really honest reflections and stories as to their experience. And what it does is it really hammers home some of the struggles on the ground, but also just the absolute tenacity and resilience of the Ukrainian people. Um, Medics for Ukraine is also mentioned in the episode. Uh, David and Sean have played f- some fundamental roles within uh, Medics for Ukraine, and we do uh, mention an update on that in the episode as well. So here is an update on the Ukrainian crisis with David and Sean. All right, please do enjoy. So uh, what we do is let them both introduce themselves, uh, starting with David. Over to you. Hi, uh, my name is David. I'm a special rescue paramedic. The a little over 16 years of experience, uh, nine of which has been focused um, on osteo rescue, conflict medicine, and medical intelligence. Uh, I'm also um, an instructor of pre-hospital medicine and occasionally still work as a firefighter paramedic in my hometown. Fantastic. Fantastic. And Sean? I'm Sean, a critical care paramedic, and I've been working in pre-hospital care for over nine years. I've got an additional background in a lot of wilderness medicine and tactical medicine, and spent the last almost five years of doing a lot of humanitarian work overseas. Fantastic. And so what so I thought that we'd start with is just getting you to speak to the background of your time in, in Ukraine. So how long you've been there and what you've been up to. And David, if I could just get you to go first. Yeah, so I've been working in um, Eastern Europe and to various degrees with Ukraine um, since 2014. Uh, most recently, I worked as a um, paramedic with the OSCE, which is the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Um, that was in 2020, uh, and I worked in the Donbass, um, mostly in the Kramatorsk and Bakhmut area. Uh, in March of last year, I worked as a, um, at the start of the, the Russian invasion, I worked as an analyst in the support capacity um, for a couple of different organizations, and then this year spent uh, most of my summer training Ukrainian medical providers um, in TCCC and prolonged casualty care, and that also included um, kind of this more uh, extended transport time kind of situation that we find ourselves in. Fantastic, and Sean? Uh, so I also worked for the OSC, and that's where I initially met David um, back in the summer of 2020 in the Donbass. Um, and I was working on that project basically up until the war broke out in February of last year. 
And uh, when the war broke out, um, I was on the way back to the U.S. and I got in touch with colleagues from that project and we had this idea that we we're going to get together and through an organized fashion return to Ukraine and try and deliver humanitarian aid using all the stuff we have learned and all the connections we had made living and working in that country to try and help out civilians or the government and whatever they needed um, as one of the first things that happened when the war broke out is the Ministry of Health submitted this um, proposal online asking for foreign healthcare volunteers to help backstaff their system. Um, so I wound up over there at the beginning of the conflict, um, delivered some supplies, um, made some connections, wound up um, actually doing medevacs with the Ukrainian Ministry of Health. Um, and also, uh, yeah, just there's a lot of places in the country that I wound up going, doing CASAVACs and ho hospital assessments. And then the whole time I was in touch with David's and um, was work with, working with him when we went back this past summer to deliver some medical, medical education as well. So let's look at this last summer, if that's okay, uh, Sean. And if we could just get you to unpack what the summer looked like, actually, um, from this most recent deployment, and just get you to speak to some of the activity you were doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we spent uh, what was it, six weeks over there um, teaching uh, a tactical medicine program. So we were developing and deploying um, tactical combat casualty care and working with um, local partners to translate that into Ukrainian um, to do further capacity building that aren't as reliant on you know, Americans who only speak English to just come over and teach them off an English slide, but try and get it in their language to foster understanding, foster more capacity so that they can go out, use that training, and potentially train others, you know, teach a man to fish type of situation. Um, and we were working with a lot of other incredible clinicians from the U.S. that were a, a part of the team, um, the local Ukrainian translators and um, agencies over there were a fantastic support unit, and so were the organizations that actually were able to facilitate all these people coming together in one cohesive unit. So David, could I get you just to convey how you've seen things change over the past recent period of time? So am I right in thinking that sort of even civilians at the moment of all ages are taking trauma training and sort of literally everyone is sort of playing their role to support the efforts? Yeah. Um, so in general, and, and again, with, with directly my experience, um, you know, which is a single person. Um, I'd say that the majority of Ukrainians recognize um, that there is a very literal threat to their existence. Um, and in those situations, people react in a variety of ways. Um, I, I, I've worked in a lot of humanitarian and disaster situations over the last decade, um, and I've never really worked in and around a population who are so willing to take active steps towards securing their own safety and security in a very uncertain um, and dynamic situation. Um, so even people who are relatively unengaged um, in kind of greater politics, um, or even the war effort in general, um, recognize that drones and missiles don't really care, um, and that they're likely to either encounter injured people or become injured themselves. I, th I think it's fair to say that they're some of the best students we've ever taught as well. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and because of that, just so many people across such a wide variety of of the population, you know, we were training um, both members of the military, the Ministry of the Interior, as well as um, your traditional kind of fire and EMS rescue services there. Um, but so many people are getting trained in just like basic trauma care, and even if it's just placing a tourniquet. And just the absolute rapt attention that they had, they were not taking eyes off the instructors for a moment, and truly dedicated, like when, you know, if you're, if you're an instructor showing them what to do in the scenario, they were mirroring the, the exact movements of your hands going through a physical exam. Yeah. The letter it was like, like almost choreography of a ballet with the dedication they had to getting it right and following examples of, 
you know, people, we, we were up in front of them presented as the subject matter experts, teaching them things that would save a life, whether their own or their, or their, or their fellow countrymen. So, and yeah, they really like understood that. And I would say that that's, that is a kind of a change from at least what I saw back in even 2020, um, where, you know, the war was very much kind of a war in the East. You know, it was a very kind of a separate thing. If you were living in the Western part of the country and you had just the separatists, um, you know, action against the the Ukrainian government at the at the contact line um you know kind of the average Ukrainian had other kind of pressing matters to kind of worry about but um since the Russian invasion um you know you suddenly had went from a kind of a simmering hyper regional conflict to um a full blown regional conflict uh you know and that's very different <laughs> and and it has just the potential to involve everyone and it did very early on you know you had a two-pronged yeah a three-pronged invasion mm -hmm. and so all of a sudden you know just because you were living in the capital doesn't mean that you were exempt um and i think that really hit home for a lot of people um and yeah and it's just been really they were probably some of the best students i've ever had <laughs> sorry to my current class <laughs> Did it, did it matter that they didn't speak English necessarily? Could you, could you transfer or infer exactly what you needed to teach not speaking Ukrainian and or Russian? Because I believe part of Ukraine actually speaks Russian. Yeah, and, and so um, I have some Russian speaking in my background and, and uh, my Ukrainian is not great. Um, I mostly got a pass and they're like, all right, you, you know, you, you've tried it pretty, you know, and most of them speak pretty good English, honestly. Um, but, uh, our translate, I can't speak highly enough of our translators. Oh, yeah. We had some of the best translators I've ever worked with across any environment. And they too are just so dedicated to really understanding what, you know, if I say something in English, that has context other than just the words and they did a really phenomenal job of trying to nail down what the context of a phrase would be for training so they could really impart that upon the students and that was really really cool and so after i mean we were with them for weeks yeah. and very quickly you know you just kind of get into a groove with it um and we were pretty well embedded i mean we lived with them yeah we ate with them we you know we were with them for for 12 to 16 hours a day we were sleeping in the same dorms as them um so it for me at least it was much more kind of an embedded mm -hmm. system um and uh yeah we'd have pretty funny talks yeah well, outside of classrooms helpful in all that was in our classroom you had students who were bilingual who had taken similar courses before and our translators didn't have the medical background that we did so you have to make sure you're using the right language because you don't want things to get lost in translation but it was helpful to have students because you know from an instructor perspective the best thing that you can see from a student is students teaching each other because they're going to learn and retain so much more so when you had some of these students in the classroom who had been through similar um, TCCC courses or you know practical experience um, from being exposed to the war um, being able to just pitch in and assist you know with translating it into the correct medical terminology in Ukrainian and 
how, how they were able to play off each other. I remember telling him at the beginning of the, of the class as we were starting everything up, I was like, for those of you who, this may be redundant or, or rehashed, this is a chance for you to develop those leadership skills. Because um, that's one of the next steps as a clinician, if you've already learned this stuff and beaten it to death, is, is to be able to lead others in, through a resuscitation or a traumatic event and you know optimize patient care outcomes, whether for one patient or you know, in a war, you're probably going to face a situation where you have multiple casualties. So, and we had, and, and it, there's one small group of students, you know, I'm sure you oh, yeah, know what we're talking about. They were, they were awesome. And they, they truly led the charge in terms of like telling people to take it seriously. Yeah. Because there were a few of them who, who did not need that class, but they were, you know, emphasizing these are reps. This is important. We've been there. We've done that. Yep. And this is a chance to, to, to practice. And it's just, just like on the football pitch, you run the same drill over and over again until it's just subconscious action. And they were doing that and they, and they really, you know, the kind of the class coalesced around their leadership. And so, you know, as an instructor, you can't ask for anything better. It's just, it's, it's wonderful. And, you know, you could, you could even tell them, hey, you know, here's, here's what the outcome we want you to have, you know, for this evolution. And they're like, oh, yeah, okay, I got, you know, and you had, you had instant buy-in. And you had buy-in from a group of people who had already been working on frontline combat units <laughs> as medics. And, um, you know, yeah, my Ukrainian is not great, but man, they can fill in the gaps so easy. It was, it was, it was a real treat with them. The other interesting thing is when you're working with medical providers, the language of medicine is somewhat international in a certain sense. Cause I remember last year when I was doing medevacs and Kazavacs, um, go to receive a patient from an anesthesiologist at a, at a role, at a role one. And, um, you know, you really can't understand each other, but you're picking up vials of medication and it'd be like, you know, look at that ketamine. And then you're gesturing 200, you know, spelling it out with your hands. And then you're looking at your watch 30 minutes ago. So you might not speak the same language, but you can, like, through that pantomime and through those similar terminologies, understand what's going on, you know, through the physical exam, understand that this person's got shrapnel to the abdomen, their airway, you can obviously see they're innovative, so you've got to control the airway. And, you know, the ventilator settings, you just mimic the dials and, you know, do your, do your solid assessment. And you're, you have that interplay um, through a language barrier, but you get on the same page just as experienced providers and knowing what to look for and knowing how to communicate that through the tools that you have in the room through each other. And that was, that was surprising how well that worked and the, the rapport that you build and the trust that you build because, you know, these, these Ukrainian healthcare professionals are extremely well-educated. Some of their physicians and especially their anesthesiologists as resuscitationists are just top-notch. Um, and they've only gotten better um, through some really hard-won experience. And just one thing not to that I really want to emphasize is you really can't underestimate just how good these students are, but also their actual practitioners. Like, you know, don't, don't discount them. They're, they're top notch, they're top notch healthcare providers. Yeah. They might not have had the equipment, you know, that we're used to having just like in the back of an ALS unit in the States, but it's not that they don't know how to use it. They do. They just, don't have access to it. So as soon as you give them access to it, you know, it, they're like, yeah, this is, yeah, heck yeah, let's use ultrasound. Let's, you know, let's, let's, mm -hmm. you know, um, it, it's all there. Uh, yeah. That was really nice. One of the things that's coming out, actually, what you're saying is that actually a lot of learning is kinesthetic. So a lot of learning is feeling how you put a tourniquet on, how tight it should be, kinesthetically feeling where it should go on a limb, looking and seeing, you know, wh where the pressure points are, where the sequential treatment is in a very simple fashion, but actually extremely effectively. But, but there's so, I think what I'm getting from you guys, and I fundamentally agree with this, is that there's so much inferred learning from feeling, touching, uh, understanding from looking 
and 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 just um yeah just everything outside of what language can deliver mm-hmm. there's still a lot of learning that can occur in in that space yeah i i'd, I'd say that medical nerdum is pretty cross cultural that's <laughs> like if you remember the one student who drew the pictures for us, I, he he was grabbing us frequently. He'd go out, he'd grab a translator, and he'd run up to us with the translator and you know dragging him along. It's like I want you to show me what you would do in this situation. I, I'm going to lay on the ground as a patient and just you do what you do. Just because, yeah, as you said, it's that kinesthesiology, that hands-on, that you know, it's, it's that type two fun almost because you're getting involved, learning learning through doing. Yeah, and he was a doctor. Yeah, he was a doctor in their in their emergency services. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, he was he was awesome. Oh yeah. And he knew that he, what he was learning, he was going to go. You know, every single one of these people, they were going to leave the course and and either essentially immediately go into a all of them are go, immediately going into a combat zone. Some of them going into direct combat. Others, especially on the emergency services side, are at the you know, especially at the time we're dealing with daily and nightly missile attacks. So, well, and this is something I actually wanted to explore with you guys is just the exposure, the vicarious exposure to trauma and to, to, to blast and ballistic injuries that these people are seeing. So it's not like any of this training is redundant because I think from a muscle memory perspective, they're probably, they're probably practicing it on a daily or bi-daily basis, which compounds learning, but also sometimes you know not having been there myself but speaking to people like yourselves you know a face can tell a thousand stories just by looking at the countenance of somebody looking at their face looking at their emotions looking at their engagement and also just looking at their intention like you said everyone's on board everyone's absolutely fixed on what you're saying what you're doing what you're teaching and and that that those inferences speak a thousand words in in and of of, of themselves because they will be seeing practicing and teaching those skills to other people the next day or even that day. Yeah, and you could yeah. you could see that sometimes in their faces. Yeah, there it, was um, they're tired. The, yeah. the one cadre of students that we refer to, um, they sat you know front row, dead center in front of us, and there were some lectures that they were they were intently nodding their heads of like, you know, this is exactly what happens with this type of injury and this is exactly what you need to do. And and those particular students, I, I, I think if I remember their deployment schedule, they literally had just come from the front and were literally, their R&R was spent in classrooms. They didn't get to get the time off because they were going straight back when they finished our course. Yeah, they spent their, they spent and, their leave in our class. You know, having students like that in the classroom definitely helped to disseminate it outside of to, because um, we had we had people who were going to go back and be instructors themselves or were current um, nursing hospital paramedic program instructors for Ukrainians that were going to take the lessons of not just what we're teaching, but how we teach to disseminate it to their people. And just, yeah, all that, all that experience, you could definitely see just how people carry themselves and how people conduct themselves in drills. Um, our lead instructor, every couple of lectures or even just in the middle of lecture, would just, you know, shout from the back of the classroom, tourniquet drill. And you could see as the students were like diving to the floor, you know, hey, tourniquet drill, left leg, just... You know, day one, it was like, are, are these guys serious? And like, you know, by, by day two or d- end of day one, boom, spot on, you know, we're checking. It's like, you know, looking at our watches and, you know, you got people hands in the air. Have I, have I done it in time and have I done it correctly? Um, yeah. It's powerful. It's powerful. So, to, so just, just moving the question on slightly, Sean, and looking at what the continued need on the ground. What do you, Sean, from your perspective, what do you see is most fundamental at the moment um, on the ground for the Ukrainian people. Yeah, um, and I like to take this question to emphasize, like, 
my response to this is going to be one person's anecdotal narrow view. Like I haven't been everywhere in Ukraine. I haven't been there in several months. Um, so it is one person's perspective. It's very narrow and I cannot speak for everyone in the whole situation. And there's information coming out every day through the public media channels, through people's own um, networks. Um, so it's, there's, there's a lot to take in, but the, the consistent message that um, I, I'd really like to emphasize, like, you know, there's, there's a need for that high quality standardized training. Um, one of the problems I saw personally last year was a lot of people were flooding the country offering training, but it was like, you know, who are you getting as an instructor and what are they teaching? And it was something that came up in the classwork is well, so-and-so taught me this and it may not be in a, in a, in lined up with the JT, uh, Joint Trauma System guidelines or the actual Committee of TCCC teachings. Um, but then also when we deliver these trainings, having a train the trainer opportunity because we can't be there all the time, you know the different organizations, there is an operating budget. There are people who have timelines of how long they can commit. So if you can train the locals to pass that information along, and that's a couple of our translators were very much into that and wanted to use their time as a translator to learn the curriculum, to learn how to be a good medical provider, whether it be as an EMT or aspirations to become a paramedic or nurse, because that's where they live. They don't get to leave. We have the luxury of being able to leave. But if we can plant that seed where we have instructors who can continue the message, continue education, that's an outsized impact. You teach one person, they teach 10 people, they save 10 lives, and you just look at that ripple effect throughout everything. David, just looking at what you've learned from this conflict, uh, both about Ukraine and the intrusion of the Russian forces, could you speak to, just from your anecdotal experience, and indeed from the information you've assimilated from horizon scanning, from security briefs yourself, what the current state of play is um, currently from this co in this conflict, just around sort of what you've learned, because this this is a conflict like we've not seen before. You know, the use of drones, the 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 use of um, missiles in, in in different ways. The 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 vulnerability of tanks, the vulnerability of airframes, of, of helicopters, and yeah. owning the airspace in a very different way. Could you could you speak to what you've learned? Yeah, you know, um, you know, both Sean and I come from uh, an environment where all of our tactical training kind of precipitates the idea that you can get a helicopter within 15, 20 minutes. Um, and, you know, we got really good at that in Afghanistan. Um, and that's just not the case whatsoever. There, nobody is flying. Um, and, uh, you know, all of that stuff has just gone completely out the window. Um, the manner in which, uh, like, low-budget tech is used is just astounding. And it is, um, it, is a, it is just kind of an evolutionary leap forward in warfare, um, which we just haven't really seen because we haven't truly had a... a peer-to-peer -peer or near-peer conflict with modern weapons. And now we have. And in some ways, um, a lot of those modern weapons kind of negate themselves. So um, air power is significantly negated, um, whereas missiles are extremely high on the list of, of, you know, yeah, we should be using missiles. But at the same time, you know, the Russians fired, would fire dozens of missiles at us every night. And, you know, the Ukrainians shoot down the the majority the incredibly of incredibly effective air defenses right especially where we were yeah and and so you know it, it's um you end up getting this really weird like oh yeah we have high-tech drones and stuff like that yeah they're high-tech drones but they're 80 bucks on amazon um at the same time i'm afraid of an 80 dollar drone and rightfully so and everybody there 
is and should be because of how of, of how effective it is we saw firsthand at that one apartment of just the remnants of the drone after it got shot down crashing in and, and taking out the it was just the facade on the exterior but yeah there's still the potential of risk and damages getting through well i mean within this conflict because of you know in certain areas it is a little more resource poor necessity has been the mother of invention yeah um, you know we've been doing improvised we were doing improvised casaback platforms last year in the back of pickup trucks you know you'd, you'd be at the row one and they'd be rolling up in an od green painted van and the, the patients are just on the floor of the van just ad hoc style and getting unloaded in front of the hospital the, you know the the head anesthesiologist is triaging and pointing who's going to damage control surgery who's going to the hallway who's going to just you know right. an ed bed and you're just looking, watching how they, are, how the, how how the flow is come with the combat medic coming in, giving report and the assessment, and you know, a certain lack of supply. Um, yeah, lack of supply was really interesting in how they cope with that because we we take for granted on, in the Western world of, you know, whether it is disaster response or military medicine, you know, you expect a solid a solid logistics chain. And I remember the first day we got to the uh, to the hospital we were working at um, during the one offensive. Um, you have this IV pole, you know, your four-pronged um, IV hanging pole, and it was just full of old used tourniquets to be reused because they didn't have new tourniquets. And it was yeah. just like you finish damage control surgery, you um, do your anastomosis or whatever your vascular surgery is, you, the tourniquet's off. It's like, well, if it's, it might be good enough to work again, and we're just going to hang it on the tree, and if it breaks, we have a whole tree full of other ones, and eventually one of them will work, hopefully. Um, I do think that is it, that should be you know that kind of goes to a point that I jotted down was that like you know the Ukrainians started out with with very little supply in in kind of what we would think of as necessary for for this type of conflict, um, but when they do get supply, they really put it to use like insanely fast and in really novel, interesting ways, um, and and so that's 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 pretty cool. Yeah, um, I remember taking patients on a ventilator that looked like it was from the 1970s. Like me and my, my other partner, who was also a critical care paramedic, we're, we're looking at this and it's got like this weird balloon. It's got some hoses. Yeah. It, it genuinely looks like something out of like a clockwork orange. And, you know, you're putting the patient on it, trying to figure out the settings. and But it works. Yeah. And then you get to a hospital in central Ukraine and you're meeting other volunteers who have brought in equipment from other countries. And you're seeing, you know, the equivalent of, um, you know, I'm familiar with... Um, not to drop name brands, I'm not endorsing these, it's just what I've used in my career, a Revel or an LTV 1200. Um, didn't see any Hamiltons, but uh, those are obviously very expensive. Yeah. <laughs> um, wouldn't be surprised if someone managed to ship one over, though, for an ICU or something. Every once in a while you see a Zoll and you're like, ah, well, yeah, wonderful. I saw a Lifepack 15 once, that was, that yeah, was that's refreshing. Yeah. Quite a few Lifepack 12s. A lot of Lifepack 12s. A lot, a, lot a lot of discount Lifepack 12s. And it was interesting because... One of the one of the projects I wound up on last summer was to to do hospital assessments, and we were actually confirming the original U.S. Department of State assessments. Like, if you go on the DOS website on the U.S. Embassy, like, where can you get medical care in Ukraine? Um, you know, we we pulled up that list on our security team, and it's just like, you know, Sean, you're going to be driving around Ukraine for a few for a week or so, visiting all these and confirming these hospitals still have these services available, and it's confirming how this works for when. Um, journalists are going to the field like do we have a medevac timeline if someone gets hurt you know how does that look like what service can we bring them to are the hospitals okay with us bringing a foreigner to them outside of their services through our own casualty yeah. evacuation network and you go there and you introduce yourself as a healthcare provider you have your translator and they were so enthusiastic to see foreign support um, and to show off what they had and some of the hospitals um, had some really interesting capabilities far forward whether it be MRI and CT that you wouldn't expect or and um, over the course of last year, we saw whole blood starting to be deployed 
I remember meeting the one medic who, uh, one, one, of the, one of the spearheads on that with the other doctor that we were working with, um, how amazing that was. And now, you know, teaching tactical medicine this past summer, it's so much more familiar to them. Like, you know, last year is like, unless it was a specific kind of surgeon or someone, they didn't have blood fire forward with their, with their portable coolers. And now it's like, hey, what can we do to work within, you know, what, what laws do we need to pass at the highest level to legalize that and, and save lives? Because yeah. originally it was just legally impossible to do whole blood transfusions at the front. And now, you know, that introduction of all these, you know, highly competent um, partner forces trainers that are wanting to go to the country and introduce what we've been doing over here. And again, these physicians know that this is required. So like, you know, sometimes it's like, it feels redundant to them. It feels redundant. Like when someone from outside their country tells them, Hey, we do this this way. It's like, we know, and we, we want to do it that way. Right. Um, we just there's, don't just, there's just a, there's just a legal problem. And you know, the ministry of health has had to work with the ministry of defense and, and they've been working on it though, with all the other physicians and other um, committees that are just giving them information. And it, yeah, so it's just been a, an evolution for the better as far as healthcare concerns. But again, it's, it's that necessity breeds invention type situation. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think I, I love, I just love the, your story of getting the white ambulance, being like, oh God, <laughs> why is it bright white? Yeah, yeah, it's not not a good thing. Quickly, going towards cover when you're trying up. to pick up people from near the front line. Covering that in mud was a priority. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and there's been documented cases of, of, of Russians targeting. Um, the UK donated an, a number of green ambulances, which are you know fluorescent green ambulances, which. You know, it's, it's great, but like you say, articulation, it's super easy to articulate that as a, a, a medical aid. And as we, as we found out today at the World Extreme Medicine Conference, you know, targeting of healthcare providers and healthcare um, assets is quite high on the list of, of, uh, of the establishment, of the Russian establishment. Yeah, I think it was in the first days of the war that, um, that, that one paramedic in Mariupol, her ambulance got picked up and she was eventually released, but she was, she was POW for almost a year, I believe. Yeah. And that was, you know, a very intentional thing of what they, what they're in this particular conflict, um, targeting hospitals, targeting ambulances. And yeah. And I mean, I mean, you see dedicated tactics from the Russians, you know, the kind of the classic double tap, which is a, which is a, a usually a relatively minor strike with, um, indirect fire, um, that produces one or two casualties that gener in a, in a relatively safe ish environment. And, um, then 15, 20 minutes later, after medical providers arrive, there is a very, very targeted strike on the exact same spot. Um, and, you know, that's, that's a, that is just a common reality um, working in that environment nowadays. I remember w when they were trying to give relief to Mariupol last year and the problems that Red Cross and WHO had getting their security guarantees and even with the guarantees, how hesitant they were to go in because, you know, is their word any good type affair and yeah and just speaking to that particular incident it's it's a, it's a dangerous situation and healthcare providers have been lost and yeah it, it hurts as a community of you know especially in the particularly in the people who are interested in conflict zone medicine there is a significant amount of risk you undertake um your safety safety is not guaranteed you you know you can do everything right and still end up on the wrong end of, of an attack and you know we've We've uh, had to. We've buried a few people. Deal with that with a, with a few people that we've lost. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's super powerful and super challenging for a number of reasons, actually. Um, 
My next question really to both of you actually is where you see this conflict going. You know, we're heading into winter. Uh, you can both testify to the fact it's challenging terrain in winter with certainly in autumn as the, as the mud starts to appear, as the tracks start to become harder to... Um, to move on with 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 just the terrain the changing terrain could you could you maybe speak to where you see this next phase of this protracted conflict going and maybe um david if i could start with you and then and then sean get your yeah um you know i i i I have a one of my degrees is in military history um there are a lot of historical analogs that you can look to um especially fighting in that area it's there's it's a pretty rich history of armed conflict there um and it's probably going to be very similar to what we saw last year which is we're going to have very minimal movement on either side um the russian military is very good at fighting defensively um and while the ukrainians are learning um you know the ukrainians just don't have the population to back too many mistakes essentially you know the russians can make the russians can make a large tactical error um and not be tremendously harmed from a from a um kind of a, a fighting power perspective um, the ukrainians just don't have that ability um and so uh you know i think you know myself i was really i was really um excited at what was going on with the counteroffensive um you know that that began a few months ago um i was never one of these people that thought ah oh, yes this is going to be a lightning fast you know kind of a thing um but uh you know i winter is hard <laughs> winter winter is just hard in that environment um for both sides and so for me personally i think we're going to see um i think we're going to see similar fighting to what we saw in Bakhmut kind of in January and February and March of last year, which is just a very localized, heavy campaign where gains are made in the meters per day. Um, and it's both sides that are making gains and losses. And so uh, I think that's really, unfortunately, kind of where it's going to be for um, for a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I remember working in the Donbass before the war, one of the first things that I was introduced to was this the defenses in depth on both sides of the line of contact. And they explained to me is, you know, this is also COVID 2020, so it was a little slightly different than previous years. And um, summer is the fighting season. Winter is the time where everybody kind of regroups and rearms type of situation. So as we as we get into these colder months, um, you know, we can't get too frustrated with what's going on because, you know, there is a plan and they are getting the resources ready, but you, you just have to expect the slowdown simply because you, you can't beat the terrain and you have to be smart about what, what's that. But most of, most of my information would be coming from websites like the Institute for Study of War, who are, you know, they have their subject matter experts and bloggers that are publishing open source information. And so I would, I would definitely defer to their judgment on a lot of things rather than speaking for anything. I, you know, I'm, far more reliable speaking towards medicine to the best that I can with, you know, my limited exposure to things. So I wonder if you could just both speak to your anecdotal experience in Ukraine from uh, fr from your time there. Sean, I I'm, 
and David, I, I'm sure you've both got some quite visceral experiences, actually, of your time in Ukraine. Um, to, to the best of your ability, uh, with confidentiality, confidentiality being acknowledged and respected, could, could, you, could you maybe give us a few uh, anecdotal stories just to illustrate to listeners how difficult it is uh, and indeed how, how visceral it is? Yeah. <laughs> you want to do the, the buzz? Yeah. Well, the big buzzing. That's the best one to start off with because it is a whole country that is at war. Um, so this past summer when we arrived at our one training site, um, we, we were buzzed by a fighter jet. And once a fighter jet passes by that close and it went right overhead, um, it's a very distinctive and unique roar. And truly the last time I had heard something like that was a year previously um, with my colleagues near the front line when, our hosp when they attempted to bomb our hospital. Um, and that was, a, that was a whole experience diving into the hallways and not even enough time to get to the bunker. It, it happened so quickly. Um, so this, <laughs> we're, 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 we're in a, a rear area when this same sound occurs and I look at David and just start running and he follows me and we dive we, into the hallways because in our mind, we need to get away from the glass. We're about yeah. to get hit. And Windows are bad. There's some cadets and students in the hallway and they're just kind of like chilling, you know, getting ready to go out for a smoke break or something. They're kind of looking at us like, why did you two dive into the hallway? Yeah. <laughs> and, and we're like, oh, Right, the only the only jet that could be coming into this area whatsoever is Ukrainian. Uh, but, and <laughs> but I explained to them like my past experience because this was our this was literally day one. This was day one, and they kind of looked at us and they get an impression of like, oh, these guys, these guys have, have been there, done that, and that's that's important. But it's also because like complacency you don't want to get complacent, and the country does not like they're they're seeing these missile attacks almost on the daily. I remember. Um, in that, you know, Kiev, while we were there, every single night was dozens, if not at, a couple times, they fired up like, almost 100 missiles a night, every night, getting woken up in the night. And, um, you know, you can go on the app store and get the air raid around because, you know, you have Luke Skywalker on the air raid alarm, you know, telling you complacency is your enemy. And then, you know, when the all clear is, you know, may the force be with you. Yeah, admonish. Like, everybody in Ukraine is hearing that. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's a situation where like, Russia can strike anywhere at any time, unfortunately. So there is really no time to truly relax yeah. um, despite of it. And there's reminders of that everywhere as you drive around the country. You know, there's not as many sandbags and checkpoints up as there was in March of 2022. But the reminders of that, you know, this is an con entire country at war committed to war facing an existential threat that is more than willing to target areas well beyond the front line and well outside of military institutions. Um, yeah. So that experience, you know, diving the hallway like that was like a wake up call for the students of like, we're here to teach you something. And we've, we're bringing some experience to the table that's very important for you to understand. And there was another point where we went to a, um, we were in a hotel for a few days um, in Kiev. And it just so happened that it was this really wonderfully like large window that looked straight at an area that was like relatively frequently the target of missiles. Mm -hmm. And we just had this kind of funny conversation. I have the photo of us sitting in the in the two twin beds <laughs> on either side, and we were just like, "Okay, so like, there's not really a headboard, so you know, like we can, you know, should we do feet towards the window? You know, should we do head towards the window? All right, let's do feet towards the window. So if the window blows out for whatever reason, like we'll probably just get our legs cut up." And, you know, it's just like, all right, wh where, where's our kit? You know, <laughs> you know, it's like, all right, my kit's going to be right here. Okay, my kit's going to be right here, you know. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if, it, so if the window, you know, it's like, and, okay, so if we get an air raid alert, should we go? 
you know, you also get to that kind of point where it's like, you it's know, it's every so single boring. night, multiple times a night where you're just like, I'm just, I'm just going to sleep through this one and hopefully the window doesn't blow in. But that was always a, a you know, that, that would be like a very deliberate conversation that is just kind of part of yeah, our assessment. Yeah. Yeah. It's just part of our, kind of our, oh yeah, all right, we're in a new space. I mean, that was, it was shortly after that, that um, Poto actually got hit because we, we split up to go take care of some errands. And I remember texting you, it's like, hey, yeah, um, that was right I'm going to hang out in this overpass. Where are you at? Yeah, and I was like, um, I'm somewhere else by the train station. And there's a, you know, yeah, missiles flying overhead, you know, kind of a thing. <laughs> that, was, that was pretty funny. Um, and the, yeah, they actually did, like, impact inside the city limits down that day, too. Yes. Yeah. There was a lot of emergency response vehicles and, yeah. Yep, that was, a, that was an interesting day. But it's 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 interesting, isn't it? It's both interesting and, and challenging because, like you said, there's daily, um, you know, alarms going off, uh, like um, alerts. There's there's daily threat, but it's not. <laughs> the middle ground is not becoming complacent, sharing the mental model. Right, my kids here, my kids here. Do we take the window? Where do we sit? Where, where do we sleep? Um, so pre pre predetermined, you know, because if the lights go out. We, we, we go this way, we do mm -hmm. that. But it's how, yeah, how do you differentiate what to pay attention to versus what not? And, 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 and mm. it's difficult. I, how, where have you arrived at that place? Um, I mean, both Sean and I have a lot of experience working in these environments. Um, so there's a lot of hard-won kind of knowledge. Um, I would, you know, every time I meet somebody who's been in that environment before me, you know, uh, I listen to everything that they have to say because especially if it's a new environment, even if it's a new disaster zone, you know, not even Ukraine, you know, if I show up uh, after, you know, if we're down in Haiti or yeah, something in Haiti, that. you know, it's like, so what are you guys doing these days? You know, and, and I grill them and I'm like, you know, and you know, they're like, Oh yeah, you know, we don't worry about it because of X, Y, Z. It's like, okay, well maybe I don't have to worry about it, but I know that that's something that you have worried about before. Um, yeah, I, I, it is an experience thing, um, and it's always so hard because, you know, there are a lot of people who have never been in that environment who would probably do very, very well in that environment, and especially, you know, your listeners and stuff are like, yeah, how can I, you know, get involved? I know the, the UN has an and, online class. It, it was called Be Safe. It might be called something different, but um, that was a required online training for um, an organization that I had volunteered with for doing international disaster response. And, you know, it's it's a whole... A several hour online course of the different checklists you need to go through when you're booking a hotel what floor do you book your rooms on yep you know in ukraine which direction is your hotel facing you know going back to that story you know which you know are you going to be facing towards where the incoming fire is you're going to be on the other side of the building so that when the incoming comes in you're not going to get worried about the blast wave or oh and i had where are your yeah where are your exit routes does this place have a shelter or a bunker um how are you going to lock up your values it's interesting accountability if you're working with a team who's going to be where yep um Predefining, uh, also walking, walking the exit routes to make sure the door is not locked. Like, say, the bunker is actually if there's no signage, you've got a mental model because if the lights are out at one a.m. and the windows go in, yeah, you've got a mental model of where that, where, where the exit routes are and where the bunker is. Yeah. But like, yeah, absolutely. And we'll time it even. You know, I, I knew roughly, you know, in one of the kind of main spots we were at, I knew that it would take roughly, um, you know, it was like twenty seconds or so to to get from the top floor down to the bunker. You know, and so it's like, all right, so let's give, you know, 
20 seconds for somebody to get out of the room, 20 seconds to get down there, and 20 seconds of kind of a grace period. And so really quickly, I'm expecting to see people within a minute. Um, and if I don't, it's like, well, what happened? Did you get lost? You know, like, did you get lost? Should I go look for somebody? You know, all those types of things are some are stuff that we actively think about. Now, granted, this is what this is what we do, and I think that that's what really differentiates. One of the other two things, you know, people is to what level are you actually thinking about this? And it's and at some point in time, it does become a little second nature. You know, I walk into rooms and I wonder, well, where is that window going to go? You know, whether it be hurricane or bomb, um, and that's just because I'm a nerd. <laughs> sure. and, and one of the interesting things about Ukraine, speaking of timing, is um, the humanitarian network. Um, they have all these group chats on on the various secure apps. Mm. And there was the one that was the um, incoming alert, where you'd have like people through open source intelligence or other connections would be posting this chat of like, "Hey, a few bombers just took off from um, Rostov on the Dan, and it looks like they're heading in the direction of Kharkiv." Um, we're expecting them to arrive in Kharkiv in about yeah. an hour and a half. They'll be at their launch window in an hour and a half, and it takes another 45 minutes for the missile to, to, to reach you. Yeah. So expect around 2 a.m. for an alert. And we'd be and sitting there at like... spot on. Yeah, and we'd be sitting there, you know, like getting ready for bed, and be like, so see you at 2. You know, and, and at 2.05, the alerts would go off, and we'd be like, all right, down to the bunker. I mean, depending on how much activity, there was the discussion among the team. is like, do we just sleep in the bunker tonight to avoid going up and down the stairs? Yeah, multiple yeah. times we did that, where it was just like, you know, we have really good intelligence that tonight is just going to be not great, and we'll just sleep in the bunker. And, uh, and yeah. just avoid all those, you know, because it's probably a sleepless night anyway. If you're thinking there's going to be there's going to be a missile strike, so absolutely to that to that point. So I just wanted to ask what the pre-hospital services and indeed hospital services are like at the moment. Are they coping with the demand? Um, are they well resourced? Is there any anxiety about responding given the fact that Russian forces are purposely targeting healthcare? Yeah, it's, it's definitely a stressful environment. I mean, when, when we were there uh, delivering the training um, just outside of uh, Meshnikova University, which is a major hospital in central Ukraine, one of the um, external facilities was actually got the missile got through the uh, through the air defenses and just leveled leveled an outside clinic, and that's that's an incredibly important, incredibly busy hospital. Like you're you're thinking like role three plus level of care if you're familiar with the NATO designations, Com full comprehensive services. A lot of casualties will wind up being funneled through there depending on which area of the front they're coming back from, um, and so even you know as recently as that summer, something to get through and hit that system, which for a while you know you. Was, it's almost taken for granted sometimes when you don't get targeted or your defenses take care of everything. So you know, there, is, there is a definite anxiety, even from some of the students we had that weren't necessarily going to the front, but were just supporting the ambulance services whether in, in the rear of knowing that you know, potentially they could be the first on scene to an MCI in their area, and they're going to have to be responsible for taking care of that. And um, you know, talking to some uh, colleagues in the humanitarian network and other fields who are in Ukraine, um, continuing to deliver training services and otherwise, there's still foreign healthcare volunteers showing up with ambulances to backstaff the system and working with the Ministry of Health and Ministry of Defense to find a way to um, reinforce their medevac chain and their medevac rings and what that's looking like. You know, there's um, NGOs out there with full-blown buses converted to mobile ICUs that can take care of multiple patients. There's there's trains that have, you know, patient suites and, you know, full surgical staffs to transport people from one side of the country to the other. 
And you know, then you have the foreign workers who have, you know, I've, I've seen, as you mentioned, the ambulances from the old ambulances with, you know, hundreds of thousands of kilometers on them from the London Ambulance Service, you know, repainted and sent out there um, with people staffing them. And, you know, at the same time, if you look statistically, Ukraine has an incredibly robust healthcare system in terms of number of hospital beds and providers. But when you're potentially dealing with, you know, hundreds of casualties a day just from the military aspect and heaven forbid of strike hits in the rear, I remember at one point last summer, a mall got hit along the Dnieper River. Um, and it was like a, a, a severe incident in the rear. You know, these, everyone knows that they are potentially have to be prepared for something getting through and it could happen in, in any backyard across the country. It's, just, it's not confined to the areas at the front line. Um, so yeah, they're, they're, they're grateful for any help and any structure they give. Because the other thing is their paramedic program, um, they, they just got, is a four-year program and they just graduated their first class of paramedics that we would consider paramedics here in the UK or in the US in, in January before the war broke out. So their whole legal aspect of what a paramedic pre-hospital provider is, is very new to them because it used to be either a doctor or a nurse on the ambulance or what they would call a felcher who would be like, you know, a BOS first responder with a stretcher. And now, especially with all the, all the foreign healthcare volunteers and qualified people coming in and showing them, hey, this is how we do it in London, for example, or so on, or, or in New York City. And this is what we have in our ambulances. And then when you get to the front, this is how we've adapted that. Because, you know, when you're, when you're treating this level of casualties and you're doing this specific role, we don't need a full ACLS suite. We need more extra tourniquets. And how do you adapt your CASAVAC platform to take care of the traumatic injuries to get them to that next echelon of care? And the lessons that we're learning of how we divide that echelon of care and we access us to the next resources has, you know, there's, there's a lot of interesting lessons to be learned of how we're delivering the appropriate level of care at the appropriate phase. Yeah, yeah, I don't think, you know, especially coming from, like, a NATO system, you know, where you have your very designated, like, forward medic, you have a, a casualty collection point mm -hmm. that is then transported to a roll one, which is then transported to a roll two, you know, uh, it just doesn't work in the way that it's envisioned, um, kind of in that system, and so there, there becomes a much more of a blurring of, like, what is a roll one, and what should be there, and... Uh, maybe we should take some of the aspects that we assume role one has, like DCS and DCR, and start pushing those out actually to the casualty collection points. How far forward can we get surgeons and blood type of thing? Right. How you know, and and when and when, you, when you're working in an environment where you know a field hospital, you know even you a role one. Lot. Right. <laughs> that, but that's, that's actually happened you, to a couple organizations. It's a parking lot a few kilometers from the fighting, if, if not even closer. Right. And but you can that also has a very very short surviving you know survivable window where they're going to have to move and so um I, I think that just i think management of management of a dynamic environment and where you know we're seeing lots of injuries that require um you know at least some dcr and dcs can you just uh, tell people what that acronym is uh, and I'm completely forget damage, damage control resuscitation and damage control surgery. Yep. I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, you get, um, I, you know, I, I think we're going to see more of a codification of pushing out some of those um, things away from kind of your what we would think of as a quote unquote role one, yeah. and much more forward. Um, and I, I just don't think. You know, we, we were having this conversation earlier. Where I, I I don't think T triple C is the kind of addendum to a certification anymore. I think it's literally just the absolute baseline that everybody should have. And then if you want to add on like respiratory, then great, you can do that. If you want to add on 
you know, the ability to do surgery and, and you have somebody who is like purely recess, then great, you can do that as opposed to like, I have a recess, you know, background and now I've added TCCC. It, it needs to kind of be the other way yeah. around, in, in my opinion. Um, I, I, I welcome I welcome the the debate on that and the movement of sure. of of tactical medicine yeah. and to maybe bring that full circle because we spoke a lot about frontline care um, but on the interior um, I'm going to go back to something we said earlier is there's there's they have a lot of systems in place with logistics to move people but it's a, it's a supply issue is, is a lot of it like I've yeah. seen at the front and even at the rear areas as we transverse through the country of like what does repatriation look like if you know so, like, you know, for example, a journalist at the front, war correspondent, does get hit. How do we bring them out? What, where will they be brought to? And what are those hospitals along the way? If, like, you know, if we're driving for eight hours and we need to stop somewhere for a night, well, it would be nice to stop at a hospital and offload them into a bed just for the night before we move on. Right. Because we can't drive for 16 hours to the border type of affair. Um, and it's, it's, there's a huge supply logistics issue, and it's obviously improved over the last year. Um, but as, as they get prepared, it's like these are in the healthcare system. Everyone is very much prepared and very much aware, um, particularly because of martial law, the Ministry of Health falls under the Ministry of Defense. Any of these healthcare providers um, could be reassigned to the front, and even the ones reassigned to the front as they rotate back, you know, there's potential to go back again. Um, so they're, they're fully invested knowing that they could be at the front line or they could be in part of the, um, the transportation chain or at a hospital for definitive care surgery and, and so on. So as we come in to land on the conversation, um, I'd just like to get your both of your thoughts on what Medic for Ukraine is doing um, in in the country, um, and, and maybe you could speak to the the passage of training and indeed the execution of training, but also maybe the the equipment. Just and, and just maybe your involvement with Medics for Ukraine and, and how you see that having an impact at the moment. Yeah, I was absolutely just there to look good. Yeah, watch Sean do some really amazing things with a with a curriculum and some logistics stuff. Why do you say that? Because you did all the cool training anyway. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you just needed me to do the paperwork for you. That's I, I know I'm terrible at that part. Um, uh, so our time with Medics Ukraine, um, I, I think, unfortunately, we're a little bit constrained with some of the security um, considerations um, of specifically who we were training. Um, needless to say, uh, they were incredibly motivated, highly trained, um, very high-speed members of the Ukrainian um, ministries. ministries. Um, and uh, they were amazing students. Yeah, that was just our specific experience. But Medics for Ukraine, they're they're doing quite a lot of work since they since they were set up. I remember last year when all these different organizations are popping up. You know, Medics for Ukraine was, you know, popping out because being associated with WEM is a massive promotion and you get a lot of attention from that. And our specific experience was with, with some specific ministry, but, um, you know, from my understanding, we, we only had a short time there, but, you know, it's, it's a far more robust program, like, especially because, as, as we talked about earlier, there's a demand in the civilian sector of people wanting that training and who can yeah. deliver it um, to get it disseminated. It's like, you know, TCCC or TECC is not confined. You don't have to just be in the military. You know there are stop the bleeds or there are FPAWs, first person on scenes, uh, and just disseminate that into the general population. You, I, I kind of see it in the long term impact with organizations like Medic for Ukraine that are delivering training of almost like what we see in uh, King County and Seattle, where everyone knows CPR, so your code save rate is ridiculously obscene. Yeah, you know you have someone with an MCI or a massive bleed in Ukraine. It's like there's a pretty darn good chance that someone nearby doesn't at least know what to do. And hopefully the supplies are nearby as well um, to save a life. 
but that's it's again you know the emphasis is uh, getting authentic supplies as well not just flooding the market with amazon chinese knockoffs which i've seen and actually had happen some tourniquets failing and even some students coming up with fake tourniquets like hey is this legitimate and you're just very disappointedly telling them no what can we replace it with and one of the things that medical ukraine has been doing is you know trying to ship supplies into country like hey if we're going to bring in trainers from from parts of europe and from parts of america like you know let's double down let's send in people with supplies and you know we have training kit we have live supplies that are being used on patients. I mean, when we showed up this past summer, um, we have that before and after picture of like, you know, six duffel bags and only one of them, one and a half of them was full of personal clothing and the rest is training kit and live, yep. live, live kit. And you know, the end result is just us with our two little personal backpacks yep. on our way out of the country, um, having left everything behind. And, you know, we tried to give this live kit to these providers who were going straight back to the front. I remember the one guy, um, Yep. Our translator, we, we made sure to, I, I gave him a lot of my personal kit because it's like, hey, I, I'd, I'd really like to come back again when this is all over um, and, and meet again. Or, you know, if you want to come back for another course and I'm able to come out teaching you. And, but knowing that every piece of kit you deliver to this country, um, and, you know, with Medic for Ukraine and their, their connections is going where it's going to be used. And that was the other, I mean, I think one of the really fun things, so like I brought some Craig trainers and, and stuff like that just because I'm a big proponent of, air, air of that. Right. Um, but, you know, just in the kit that we had for for that particular training we delivered for, for M4U, um, you know, we had that Craig trainer and that was awesome. And they got a lot of they got a lot of reps on well, you know that cutting someone open here now. Yeah, I know everybody loves doing that, but it was really fun because you know there is this there is this one um, there's this one person there who was a um, he had trained as an anesthesiologist and as a resuscitationist, mm -hmm. and he was so excited of like yeah I'm get that crazy trainer out of the way at one point to teach it himself. Yeah, he was just like yeah I I know what I'm doing I'm you know just <laughs> I got this. just give me this thing and I'm like yeah great have fun <laughs> yeah and so being able to like get that you know. With, with, a, with the supply network that Medicare Ukraine has, like getting those supplies in country, getting them to where the need is, and knowing that it's going somewhere where it's going to be used is, is so important because there, there have been issues in the past that you've heard about in the news of like supplies disappearing and it's unfortunate. Um, but with the, with the network and with organizations like Medics for Ukraine, it's getting there and it's very much needed. Because um, that's, that's like the other point of emphasis I emphasized training earlier, but like good supplies because... Yeah, I, we've seen the fake tourniquet problem. We've seen the lack of supply problem in the improvisation. I mentioned reusing old ones. And sometimes even just if all they have is a fake tourniquet, well, it's better than no tourniquet. Just be extra careful. If it doesn't break, make sure, you know, that the material it's made of isn't going to come loose on you in 15 minutes to an hour if it's a long extrication. Yeah. Um, you know, reassess that patient because you got to work with what you have. Um, but it's, it's good. It was really great to um, link up with Medics for Ukraine and continue that training mission and help them deliver the supplies that they had in country. Um, being able to partner with them and, and do that. And I think right now we were talking to Luca and Mark earlier, and they're, the, the mission's still ongoing and they're still delivering stuff. I don't know if you, you know more about that. Cool. Um, do you want to say anything before we close? Or cause Yeah, I, I guess the, the only thing that I would kind of leave this with is um, there's a photo I took one night in, in Kiev, um, and... It's one that just kind of circulates on one of my digital photo frames at home. Um, and it's a handful of us from the team um, and our translators. Um, there's some Americans, there's some Danish medics, um, two, two of our translators, you know, from the capital. And it's us hanging out um, before curfew. 
and we have like bags of chocolate. We are passing around a beer, um, and we had just spent the entire week doing all this training. It was we we had the next day off. We had Saturday off. Um, it was a Friday night. We we're just basically waiting a few hours until the the nightly missile and drone attack. Um, and that is probably one of the biggest things that, you know, I'll take away from that. It's just that little vignette of like handful of medics, handful of translators. We had just done a hard week and we're just hanging out while we have a little bit of time to do so. And that feeling that you get from those, which, you know, a lot of your listeners understand, um, exemplifies all of the good parts of working in Ukraine that I really like to hold on to. Because there's lots of bad. Um, and it's really good to have even half hour of, like, yeah, well, we're okay right now. You know, we, we might not be in, in an hour or two. Um, yeah, but I, I just, I just, I just really like that because, you know, the conflict involves so many more people than just the Ukrainians and Russians. Um, and I, and I do think that that's worth keeping in mind, um, you know, whether you're a volunteer, whether you're there fighting, whether you're there, you know, working on even something just non-medical, um, you know, it's just a handful of friends out one night, and that was really, it was, it's just a, it's a really wonderful, it's a terrible photo, but it's a really wonderful, it's a really <laughs> wonderful. is just all. Oh, that's horrible. horrible. That's terrible. Photo. Don't ever let me take photos. Yeah, it's, um, you know, we mentioned earlier, there's, there's a few friends who are, who are not with us, and, um, you know, to speak to, 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 to in particular there in the top of my mind, it's, it's unfortunate that they're not because they were really good people. And so just to ask the listeners at home to remember that, you know, this, this is a war and there are people who don't come home. Um, a lot of Ukrainians, obviously, this is, this is their homeland. Um, but on, on, on a wider note, I would, I would like to just thank the people on our team from this past summer. Um, our translators were fantastic. Our, our, our fellow instructors did a phenomenal job. This, it was a team effort. Um, and obviously, uh, the folks at Next Ukraine that we got in touch with to enable us to continue teaching and delivering supplies, and you know some of the feedback we're getting from former students of the training having saved their lives—it's it's important. But yeah, it's just a big thank you to everyone who is involved, everyone who wants to get involved, whether you want to volunteer or financially support it. Um, just just you know, keep in mind that this this war is still ongoing, and you know, don't just don't 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 forget it in all the morass and all the crazy things in the world. Um, you know they still like our sport, but even more important, as as David said, there's there's been some truly incredible moments with some some good friends, and there's been a lot of really bright spots that have come out of it as well. Listen, that's profound uh, from a number of reasons, but just that sense of community and that united uh, cause and that united front, um, and and it's in the gaps, as you said, it's in the gaps that you can just turn around and go, actually, we're from other sides of the world, but actually we're brothers really and sisters in arms and it's just that, that united community that you're speaking of in relationship which is powerful actually and uh hits home to me just listening to you actually um and it's profound 
It is profound. I just want to thank you, uh, David and Sean, for your la- for the last hour uh, and fifteen minutes. I just want to thank you for your experiences, your reflections, but really for your vulnerability. Just just honestly opening because I what I think that listeners will take from this is just this profound sense of these are real people uh, fighting a real war, and actually the day to day is extremely difficult, but their tenacity and their resilience is, uh, you, you can testify has really shone through. But thank you for that because that's, um, that, that really has moved me and I'm sure it's moved the listeners as well. So thank you. Thanks for listening to the episode. Please feel free to rate, review and subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to. Please also head over to the World Extreme Medicine website where you can find more engaging content on extreme medicine webinars and indeed the collection of courses from our global network, including humanitarian, disaster relief, expedition, space, military, tactical and performance medicine. Thanks again.